0: This is a personal injury update CLE offered by the New York Appellate Digest. I am uh, Bruce Freeman. I'm the editor of the New York Appellate Digest. And this portion of the personal injury update CLE is based on the April 2023 personal injury reversal report, which constitutes the written materials for this portion of the CLE And the page references are to that report. The first case in the April 2023 personal injury reversal report is Wait on page 4. Here, plaintiff attended a demolition derby as a spectator after signing a release. He was injured when one of the derby cars pushed through the concrete barriers. The issue was whether the assumption of the risk doctrine precluded plaintiff's lawsuit. The third department, reversing Supreme Court, held that plaintiff raised a question of fact with his own affidavit stating that he was not warned of that danger and an affidavit from a racing expert stating that the barriers did not meet industry standards. As the court put it, quote, The issue distills to whether plaintiff's submissions demonstrated facts from which it could be concluded that defendant unreasonably enhanced the danger or created conditions which were unique or above those inherent in the activity. The takeaway here, even signing a release will not insulate a defendant from suit under the assumption of the risk doctrine if the plaintiff can show the defendant unreasonably enhanced the danger inherent in the activity. Next is Grady on pages 5 and 6 of the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. Here the Court of Appeals reviewed two school sports assumption of the risk cases, affirming the dismissal of one and reversing the dismissal of the other. Two dissenters argued that the doctrine should be abandoned altogether. In Secchi, The student basketball player was injured during a drill in which the boundaries of the court were to be ignored. The student collided with another player and fell into the bleachers. The court held the injury was inherent in the game and the student assumed the risk. In the second case, Grady, the student baseball players were engaged in a drill in which baseballs from two parts of the infield were thrown to two players in the same area plaintiff was struck in the eye by an errant ball intended for the other player. The Court of Appeals held that there was a question of fact whether the drill created a unique danger above those inherent in the sport. As the Court of Appeals explained it, Plaintiff has raised tribal questions of fact regarding whether the drill, as conducted here and with the use of the 7 by 7 foot screen, was unique and created a dangerous condition over and above the usual dangers that are inherent in baseball, and whether plaintiff's awareness of the risks inherent in both the game of baseball and the practices that are a necessary part of participation in organized sports encompassed the risks arising from involvement in the drill procedure performed here. End quote. Next is Dolgos on pages 6 and 7 of the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. Here the school district was sued in this Child Victims Act case, and the allegation was that plaintiff's student was abused by a teacher. Two of the causes of action were dismissed. The cause of action alleging a violation of the student's civil rights pursuant to 42 U.S.C. 1983 was dismissed as untimely because the extended statute of limitations provided by the Child Victims Act was deemed not to apply to causes of action brought pursuant to that statute. That's the Civil Rights Statute, 42 U.S.C., 1983. And the social services law reporting violation cause of action was dismissed because teachers are not considered persons legally responsible for a child. Therefore, the social services law did not require the school to report the alleged abuse by a teacher. As the court explained it, It is true that CPLR section 214-G contains broad language. The statute nonetheless limits the types of causes of action, that being claims involving child sexual abuse, that are revived and then given a new limitations period, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 does not create any independent substantive rights but merely provides a vehicle to enforce such rights. So the, the, uh, the court was saying that the extended statute of limitations in the Child Victims Act does not apply to causes of action under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, Civil Rights Law. The court went on, quote, For purposes of Social Services Law Section 413, an abused child is one who is abused by a parent or other person legally responsible for a child's care. The Court of Appeals cautioned that persons who assume fleeting or temporary care of a child or those persons who provide extended daily care of children in institutional settings, such as teachers, should not be interpreted as a person legally responsible for a child's care. The school district cannot be liable for any alleged failure to report any abuse by a teacher. Next is Martinez, page 8 of the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. It's another Child Victims Act case and this issue has come up fairly often in these Child Victims Act cases brought in the Court of Claims. The question is how specific must the allegations be to satisfy the pleading requirements in Section 11 of the Court of Claims Act? Here, the Second Department reversed the dismissal of the claim by the Court of Appeals, finding that the allegations were sufficient. The Court explained, quote, The only reason for concluding that the claim failed to state the nature of the claim is that, while the claim included an allegation that the defendant had actual or constructive notice of the alleged sexual abuse, it did not supply any details as to how the defendant received notice of the alleged abuse. Although the requirements of Court of Claims Act Section 11 Subdivision B are strict and jurisdictional in nature, the fact remains that the claim is a pleading the contents of which are merely allegations. A necessary element of a cause of action to recover damages for negligent hiring, retention, or supervision is that the employer knew or should have known of the employee's propensity for the conduct which caused the injury. Causes of action alleging negligence based upon negligent hiring, retention, or supervision are not statutorily required to be pleaded with specificity. The manner in which the defendant acquired actual or constructive notice of the alleged abuse is an evidentiary fact to be proved by the claimant at trial. In a pleading, the plaintiff need not allege his or her evidence. Next is WCAVAWCK-DOE. Pages 9 and 10 of the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This case involves New York's long-arm jurisdiction and the extended or revived statute of limitations provided by New York's Child Victims Act. Plaintiff alleged Defendant Boys and Girls Club of Greenwich, Connecticut failed to properly supervise club activities and as a result plaintiff was abused on several occasions by a member of the club. Only one of the alleged instances of abuse took place in New York during a field trip. Although plaintiff is a Connecticut resident, and the defendant club is a Connecticut entity, the court ruled New York had long-arm jurisdiction because the tort took place in New York and plaintiff could take advantage of the revived statute of limitations in New York's Child Victims Act. As the court explained it, quote, whereas here, the plaintiff has established the requisite minimum contacts, we must then engage in the second part of the due process inquiry. That is, whether defending a suit in New York comports with traditional notions of fair play and substantial justice. Here, the defendant Boys and Girls Club of Greenwich has failed to present a compelling case that some other consideration would render jurisdiction unreasonable. The exercise of jurisdiction over the club in New York would comport with fair play and substantial justice. Next is Vicky, page 12 of the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. It's a labor law construction accident case. Here the fourth department joined the first and third departments in holding that industrial code provision, section 12 NYCRR section 23-4.2k, is not specific enough to support a labor law, section 241 subdivision 6 cause of action, only the second department has held the regulation sufficient. The regulation reads: quote, Persons shall not be suffered or permitted to work in any area where they may be struck or endangered by any excavation equipment or by any material being dislodged by or falling from such equipment. So again, that's the regulation. Uh, The first department, first uh, fourth department and third departments have held that that code provision is not specific enough to support a labor law, Section 241, Subdivision 6, Cause of Action, but the second department has held that it was specific enough. Next is matter of Cleary, pages 14 and 15 in the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. In this medical malpractice action against a county hospital, the second department held that the petition to file a late notice of claim claim should have been granted. The essence of the malpractice claim was the failure to diagnose a severed nerve. Because the severed nerve was apparent from the medical records, the county was deemed to have had timely notice of the nature of the lawsuit. As the court explained it, quote, medical records can establish actual knowledge of the essential facts constituting a claim where they evince that the medical staff by its acts or omissions inflicted an injury on the plaintiff. While an expert opinion may be helpful to this showing, it is not required where the basic facts underlying the malpractice claims can be gleaned from the medical records. Here, the hospital acquired actual knowledge of the essential facts constituting the petitioner's claim since its employees participated in the acts or omissions giving rise to the claim and prepared medical records from which it could be readily inferred that the hospital negligently failed to timely diagnose and treat the injured petitioner's nerve injury. So the takeaway in a medical malpractice action, which is subject to the notice of claim requirement in the general municipal law, the medical records can establish the defendant's timely knowledge of the nature of the claim, such that a petition for leave to file a late notice of claim should be granted. Next is Matter of Bowden-Miller, pages 15 and 16 of the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This case illustrates the special meaning of the term accident in the retirement and Social Security law. Here, a police officer sought accidentally, accidental disability benefits for an injury which occurred at his desk. When he rolled his chair backwards, a wheel caught in a rut, and he was injured grabbing his desk to keep from falling over backwards. The incident did not meet the criteria for an accident because it could reasonably have been anticipated. The court explained it this way, quote, Petitioner acknowledged that he was aware that the flooring at the front desk was in poor condition and that Both on previous occasions and prior to the incident that day, he had observed that there were two ruts in the flooring right behind the desk. Petitioner also testified that, in his estimation, the ruts were three inches across and maybe a little more. His testimony also demonstrates that he was aware that the chair he was utilizing that day had wheels and that when sitting at the desk, those wheels would be in the general area of the holes. Given this testimony and the photographs of the floor that were admitted, respondents finding that Petitioner could have reasonably anticipated the hazard, that is, that the small wheels catching in a depression in the floor would cause the chair to tip, was reasonable and supported by substantial evidence, despite other reasonable interpretations. Therefore, the finding that the precipitating event was not unexpected and did not constitute an accident within the meaning of the retirement and social security law will not be disturbed. End quote. So, the takeaway here in order for an incident to be an accident within the meaning of the retirement and social security law, it must be unexpected in that it could not reasonably have been anticipated. Next is Padilla. Pages 16 and 17 of the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This case illustrates that an out-of-possession landlord's liability for a condition on the premises which causes an injury can be determined by the language of the lease. Here the lease specified the landlord was responsible only for structural repairs, and the tenant was responsible for all non-structural repairs. The cracked step, which caused plaintiff slip and fall, was deemed to be non-structural and the landlord was off the hook. Next is Colenda on pages 17 and 18 of the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This case illustrates the limits of the written notice requirement for a slip and fall on municipal property. The question here was whether a letter from the village engineer notifying the abutting homeowners of the sidewalk defect and requiring repair within 30 days satisfied the written notice requirement in the village code. Over a dissent, the 2nd Department held that the answer is no. Here's how the 2nd Department explained it. Where a municipality has enacted a prior written notice law, Neither actual nor constructive notice of a condition satisfies the prior written notice requirement. Records generated by other agencies of the village failed to satisfy the requirements of the relevant prior written notice law. On this record, the plaintiffs failed to raise a triable issue of fact as to whether any documents to or from other municipal employees found their way to the Village Board of Trustees so as to cognizably qualify as prior written notice under the terms of the village code. So the takeaway, the fact that one municipal employee, here the village engineer, knows about a sidewalk defect and communicates with the abutting homeowners about it does not demonstrate that the village board of trustees had written notice of the defect within the meaning of the village code. Next is Diaz. Page 18 of the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. Another slip and fall. Here the plaintiff testified she slipped on a wet step. The fact that she didn't know what the wet substance was did not mean she couldn't identify the cause of her fall. The complaint should not have been dismissed. As the court explained it, quote, The defendant failed to establish prima facie that the plaintiff did not know what caused her fall. In support of its motion, the defendant submitted the deposition testimony of plaintiff who testified that she slipped and fell on a wet step. Contrary to the defendant's contention, the plaintiff's alleged inability to identify the precise nature of the wet substance upon which she allegedly slipped and fell cannot be equated with a failure to identify the cause of her fall. Next is Anderson on pages 24 and 25 of the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. Here, the Court of Appeals held that a fire district cannot be held vicariously liable for the actions of a volunteer firefighter driving a fire truck where the driver is protected by the reckless disregard standard for emergency vehicles. Supreme Court had held there was a question of fact whether the fire district could be liable under a negligence standard pursuant to the general municipal law. The Court of Appeals disagreed. As the Court of Appeals explained it, quote, Relying on general municipal law section 205-B, which states in part that fire districts created pursuant to law shall be liable for the negligence of volunteer firefighters, Supreme Court concluded that questions of fact existed regarding whether the firefighter was negligent in failing to see plaintiff's vehicle approaching, and thus the district was not entitled to summary judgment. Section 1104 of the Vehicle and Traffic Law does more than simply immunize firefighters from negligence liability for otherwise privileged conduct. It modifies their underlying duties by permitting categories of conduct which would violate other drivers' ordinary duty of care, specifying particular safety precautions which must be observed when engaging in such conduct, and requiring emergency vehicle drivers to avoid recklessness even when engaged in the privileged conduct. When a volunteer firefighter's actions satisfy all of these conditions and thus are privileged, there is simply no breach of duty or negligence, which can be imputed to a fire district under General Municipal Law, Section 205-B. So the takeaway here is a volunteer firefighter is not subject to a simple negligence standard when responding to a fire. And the more forgiving standard in the vehicle and traffic law applies. Next is Matter of Holder, pages 26 and 27 of the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This is a workers' compensation case. The third department held that contracting COVID in the workplace is an unusual hazard which is compensable under the workers' compensation law. However, here, the court found there was no proof decedent contracted COVID at the workplace. Next is Velasquez Guadalupe, pages 27 and 28. This is the last case in the April 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This is another workers' compensation case. Here, the Second Department made it clear that where the Workers' Compensation Board finds that a defendant was plaintiff's employer, the plaintiff's recovery is restricted to workers' compensation benefits and other defendants cannot seek contribution or indemnification from the employer. As the court has claimed it, quote, we hold that workers' compensation law section 11 precludes recovery by any third party for contribution and indemnity against an entity determined by the workers' compensation board to be the plaintiff's employer, except where the injured employee has suffered a grave injury or where the employee where the employer has expressly agreed in writing to contribute or indemnify. So that concludes the cases from the April 2023 um, personal injury reversal report. We're now going to be moving to the May 2023 personal injury reversal report. Next is Tara Siuk. This is pages 4 and 5, and again, we're now in the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. What happens if the owner of the law firm you work for assaults you? You're entitled to workers' compensation benefits, and you can sue the owner, who's also a co-employee for assault and battery. As the court explained it, quote, Supreme Court erred in granting the law firm owner's motion for summary judgment dismissing the complaint. Workers' Compensation Law, Section 29, does not bar an employee who has accepted workers' compensation benefits from suing a co-employee who has committed an intentional assault. The owner failed to establish that he was acting within the scope of his employment at the time of the incident and was not engaged in a willful or intentional tort. Next is Gooden, pages 5 and 6 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. Here, plaintiff is a nurse who was assaulted by a patient in defendant's hospital. The second department reversing Supreme Court held the nurse was entitled to non-privileged information in the patient's medical records about the patient's aggressive behavior. The Supreme Court judge is to review the medical records. Here's how the court explained it. Quote, Information relating to the nature of medical treatment and diagnoses made, including information communicated by the patient while the physician attends the patient in a professional capacity, as well as information obtained from observation of the patient's appearance and symptoms, is privileged. However, the physician-patient privilege generally does not extend to information obtained outside the realms of medical diagnosis and treatment. Plaintiff seeks information about prior aggressive or violent acts by the defendant. Information of a non-medical nature regarding prior aggressive or violent acts is not privileged. We remit for an in-camera review of the hospital records to determine which records contain non-privileged information that is subject to disclosure. So the takeaway from this case, information in medical records which is not related to diagnosis and treatment is not privileged. Here, the plaintiff was entitled to any non-privileged information in the defendant hospital's medical records about defendant's aggressive behavior. That's the defendant who assaulted the nurse. Next is Wimbush Burkett on pages 6 and 7 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This is another reversal of a Child Victims Act action dismissed by the Court of Claims because the claim was deemed insufficiently precise. Here the claim alleged the abuse took place during the first year of claimant's admission to a state psychiatric center in 1969. It was not necessary to allege the exact dates when the abuse occurred. Second Department explained, quote, Court of Claims Act, Section 11b, requires a claim to specify 1. the nature of the claim, 2. the time when it arose, 3. the place where it arose, 4. the items of damage or injuries claimed to have been sustained, and 5. the total sum claimed. A failure to comply with the requirements set forth in Section 11b is a jurisdictional defect that requires dismissal of the claim. A sufficiently detailed description of the particulars of the claim is necessary because the purpose of the Section 11b pleading requirements is to enable the state to investigate and promptly ascertain the existence and extent of its liability. Because suits against the state are allowed only only by the state's waiver of sovereign immunity and in derogation of the common law, Statutory requirements conditioning suit must be strictly construed. However, absolute exactness is not required so long as the particulars of the claim are detailed in a manner sufficient to permit investigation. So here it was not necessary for the claimant to allege the exact dates of the abuse in 1969 It was enough that the claim gives the state enough information to investigate. Next is Brown, pages 8 and 9 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This case illustrates the limits of a duty running from defendant to plaintiff in a tort action. Here the plaintiff was an off-duty police officer officer who responded to a theft at the defendant Walmart store. The plaintiff officer never entered the store and was involved in a traffic accident with another police officer pursuing the suspect. The fourth department held Walmart owed no duty to the plaintiff. If there is no duty, there's no liability, no matter how careless the defendant's conduct or how foreseeable the harm. As the 4th Department explained it, quote, Before a defendant may be held liable for negligence, it must be shown that the defendant owes a duty to the plaintiff. Absent a duty running directly to the injured person, there can be no liability and damages, however careless the conduct or foreseeable the harm. The definition of the existence and scope of an alleged tortfeasor's duty is usually a legal policy-laden declaration reserved for judges to make prior to submitting anything to fact-finding or jury consideration. And that determination is made by balancing factors, including the reasonable expectations of parties and society generally, the proliferation of claims, the likelihood of unlimited or insurer-like liability, disproportionate risk and reparation allocation, and public policies affecting the expansion or limitation of new channels of liability. Prior thefts at the Walmart store do not bear a sufficient relationship to what occurred in this instance, a negligent motor vehicle accident between plaintiff and his co-worker, so as to create a duty flowing from Walmart to the plaintiff. So the takeaway here. If there is no duty owed by the defendant to the plaintiff, there's no liability no matter what the defendant did or didn't do. Next are two pages Penna and Roland on pages 9 and 10 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. These two cases illustrate what a defendant must show to prove it did not have constructive notice of the dangerous condition which caused the injury. The defendant must show the area was inspected close in time to the accident. It's not enough to present evidence of an inspection routine or schedule. To warrant summary judgment, there must be evidence the area was actually inspected and found to be safe close in time to the incident. Next is Bonkowski, page 10 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. It's a labor law construction law case. In this Labor Law 240 Subdivision 1 action, the second department held that falling through an open manhole is not an elevation-related event covered by Labor Law Section 240 Subdivision 1. As the court explained it, quote, Labor Law Section 240 Subdivision 1 imposes upon owners and general contractors and their agents a non-delegable duty to provide workers proper protection from elevation-related hazards. The statute was designed to prevent those types of accidents in which the scaffold, hoist, stay, ladder, or other protective device proved inadequate to shield the injured worker from harm directly flowing from the application of the force of gravity to an object or a person. Not every gravity-related injury is within the ambit of labor law, Section 240, Subdivision 1. Whether a plaintiff is entitled to recovery under labor law, Section 240, Subdivision 1, requires a determination of whether the injury sustained is the type of elevation-related hazard to which the statute applies. So the takeaway here, not all gravity-related accidents will give rise to a labor law, Section 240, subdivision one cause of action. The statute was designed to address the safety of scaffolds and ladders, for example. This court felt that falling down an open manhole was not the type of gravity-related accident envisioned by the statute. Next is Gonzalez, page 11 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. It's another labor law construction law case. Here, the plaintiff was injured when a plank over a two foot deep trench broke. The trial court ruled the incident was not covered by the statute. That's labor law 240, subdivision one. But the second department reversed. second department explained quote, Plaintiffs submitted evidence that the plaintiff's accident was caused by defendants' failure to provide appropriate safety devices. To protect against gravity-related hazards posed by maneuvering the compressor over a trench. Although the compressor only fell a short distance, given the weight of the compressor and the amount of force it was capable of generating, the height, differentia- the height differential was not de minimis. The injured plaintiff suffered harm that flowed directly from the application of the force of gravity to the compressor. So the takeaway here. Even a fall of two feet can be covered by Labor Law Section 240, Subdivision 1, if a heavy heavy object is involved and a safety device, here a plank over a trench, fails. Next is Barnhart, page 12 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report, another labor law construction law case. In this labor law, Section 240, Subdivision 1 action, plaintiff was using his own ladder when it fell. The third department, reversing Supreme Court, held that plaintiff was entitled to summary judgment because no effort was made to secure the ladder. For example, no one was on the ground holding the ladder. The court explained, quote, There's no dispute that plaintiff used his own equipment, which does not preclude liability under Labor Law Section 240, Subdivision 1. The testimony as to the ladder's functionality at the time of the accident does not aid the defendants, as there's no dispute that no one was holding the ladder from which plaintiff fell when it suddenly shifted or wobbled, and that no safety devices were provided to prevent the ladder from slipping or plaintiff from falling if it did. Nor is there some indication that plaintiff was recalcitrant in deliberately refusing available safety devices. End quote. So the takeaway here, the fact that plaintiff was using his own ladder at the time it slipped away from the wall was not a bar to summary judgment on his labor law, section 240 subdivision. One cause of action, no one was holding the ladder and no safety devices had been provided to keep the ladder from slipping or to prevent plaintiff's fall. Next is Scurry, pages 13 and 14 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report, Court of Appeals case, looking at two separate cases. In these two cases, the Court of Appeals was dealing with summary judgment motions brought by the landlord, the New York City Housing Authority. The landlord argued it was entitled to summary judgment, because although the exterior doors to the buildings did not have functioning locks, the fact that both victims were specifically targeted for attack by the intruders constituted an intervening act which relieved the landlord of liability. The Court of Appeals rejected that argument. The Court of Appeals explained, quote, When the issue of proximate cause involves an intervening act, Liability turns on whether the intervening act is a normal or foreseeable consequence of the situation created by the defendant's negligence. It is only where the intervening act is extraordinary under the circumstances not foreseeable in the normal course of events or independent of or far removed from the defendant's conduct that it may possibly break the causal nexus. But an intervening act may not serve as a superseding cause and relieve an actor of responsibility where the risk of the intervening act occurring is the very same risk which renders the actor negligent. Here, the risk created by non-functioning door locks, uh, that being that intruders would gain access to the building and harm residents, is exactly the risk that came to fruition. So the takeaway, an intervening act which is a foreseeable consequence of the defendant's negligence is not a superseding cause which will relieve a defendant of liability. Next is Weisbrod Moore, pages 14 and 15 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This is an action brought under the Child Victims Act against a county alleging plaintiff was abused while in foster care. The Fourth Department, reversing Supreme Court, held, one, the social services law did not create a private right of action, and two, plaintiff did not demonstrate the existence of a special relationship with the county, which is necessary to overcome governmental immunity. The court explained it this way, Plaintiff cannot establish the requisite special relationship between the parties based upon the county's alleged voluntary assumption of a duty that it generated justifiable reliance on her part. To establish such a special relationship, a plaintiff must show one, an assumption by the municipality through promises or actions of an affirmative duty to act on behalf of the party who was injured. Two, knowledge on the part of the municipality's agents that inaction could lead to harm. Three, Some form of direct contact between the municipality's agents and the injured party. And four, that party's justifiable reliance on the municipality's affirmative undertaking. All four elements must be present for a special duty to attach. End quote. So the takeaway here, this governmental immunity case, a suit against a county alleging liability for the abuse of the plaintiff while in foster care, The county can only be held liable for a ministerial as opposed to a discretionary act. To hold a county liable for a ministerial act, the plaintiff must demonstrate a special relationship with the county. The fourth department found that plaintiff had not demonstrated the criteria for a special relationship such that governmental immunity would not apply. Next is Curry on pages 15 and 16 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. The question raised by this case against a town is whether the complaint can include causes of action not included in the notice of claim, and the answer is no. As the court explained it, quote, causes of action or legal theories may not be raised in the complaint that were not directly or indirectly mentioned in the notice of claim and that change the nature of the claim or assert a new one. Here, the notice of claim was limited to the incident that allegedly transpired on January 6, 2019, and thus the causes of action arising out of events allegedly occurring thereafter, insofar as asserted against the appellants, are foreclosed. End quote. So, you cannot include causes of action in your complaint that are not uh, a part of the notice of claim against the municipality. Next is Sogren, S J O G R E N, pages 16 and 17 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This case illustrates that an unambiguous release will preclude a lawsuit absent fraud. Here the plaintiff was enrolled in a wellness and fitness education course, which was a mandatory course that had to be taken as part of her general studies degree program at a college. The plaintiff informed the instructor of her prior back injuries and signed a release which, quote, discharged the college from all liability for any claim of injury to the plaintiff whether harm is caused by the negligence of the releasees or otherwise, end quote. The release was, quote, intended to be broad and inclusive in keeping with state laws, end quote. That language was sufficient to preclude a suit based upon injuries plaintiffs suffered taking the course. Next are Rodriguez and Gomez, pages 17, 18, 19 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. These two slip and fall cases reiterate the requirements for proof of a defendant's lack of constructive notice of the condition which caused the fall. A defendant must prove the area of the fall was inspected and found safe close in time to the fall. In Rodriguez, Rodriguez, there was no evidence when the area was last inspected, In Gomez, defendants submitted a vague affidavit claiming inspections occurred twice a week with no indication when the area was last inspected. So the takeaway here, the only way a defendant can prove that it did not have constructive notice of a dangerous condition which caused an injury is to show that that area was actually inspected and found to be safe close in time to the slip and fall. Next is Tomala, pages 19 and 20 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This case illustrates that a snow removal contractor can be liable to a slip and fall plaintiff who is not a party to the contract if the contractor can be said to have launched an instrument of harm which caused the fall. The court explained, quote, since the plaintiff's pleadings alleged that the landscapes defendants, through their snow removal efforts, created the icy condition in the parking lot, thereby launching a force or instrument of harm that caused the plaintiff's injuries, those defendants, in support of their motion for summary judgment, were required to establish that they did not create the alleged dangerous condition. The landscapes defendants failed to make such a showing as they did not affirmatively establish that they did not create the icy condition by negligently piling snow in an elevated area in the parking lot where it allegedly melted and created a stream of water that refroze. At this point, I'm going to insert a verification code for this personal injury update CLE. That verification code is froze. Again, A verification code for this personal injury update CLE to be placed on your attorney affirmation is froze. Next is Abramson, pages 20 and 21 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. Here the defendants were businesses across the street from a public sidewalk. Defendants apparently directed 18-wheel tractor trailers to drive over the sidewalk to back into the loading dock. Plaintiff alleged the defendant's use of the sidewalk caused the cracks which caused plaintiff's fall. The defendant's motion for summary judgment should not have been granted. As the court explained it, In opposition to defendant's motion, the plaintiff submitted the deposition testimony of an individual who had resided next door to the defendant's premises for nearly 56 years. The neighbor testified that the street on which he lived was a dead-end street that was mostly residential and that the drivers of 18-wheel tractor-trailers that made deliveries to the defendant's business while maneuvering into the driveway of the premises frequently drove onto the sidewalk across the street, thereby creating the condition that caused plaintiff to trip and fall the neighbor had, on numerous occasions, observed defendants' employees directing truck drivers onto the sidewalk while assisting them in backing up to the loading dock. This evidence was sufficient to raise a triable issue of fact as to whether the actions of the defendants caused or created the hazardous sidewalk condition that allegedly caused the plaintiff's accident. So the takeaway A private party may be liable for a slip and fall on a public sidewalk if the party negligently created the sidewalk defect. Next is uh, a name I can't pronounce. It's B-E-I-T-Y-A-A-G-H-O-O-B, pages 21 and 22 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. Here, plaintiff was crossing the street when defendant struck her. Plaintiff's motion for summary judgment should have been granted. Striking a pedestrian is a violation of the vehicle and traffic law and constitutes negligence per se. In addition, a driver is negligent in failing to see what there is to be seen. Next is Caceres, pages 22 and 23 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Report. Here a wheel fell off plaintiff's car shortly after leaving defendant Plaza Toyota, where the car had been serviced. Plaza Toyota was a franchisee of the Toyota defendants. The second department held the Toyota defendant's motion for summary judgment should have been granted because they demonstrated by affidavit that they did not exercise sufficient control over how Plaza Toyota serviced the cars. As the court put it, In determining whether a defendant as a franchisor may be held vicariously liable for the acts of its franchisee, the most significant factor is the degree of control that the franchisor maintains over the daily operations of the franchisee, or, more specifically, the manner of performing the very work in the course of which the accident occurred. So the takeaway here, to sue a franchisor for a franchisee's negligence, the franchisor must exercise control over the franchise work which caused the damage. Next is PIZZO, P-I-Z-Z-O, pages 23 and 24 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report Here in this traffic accident serious injury case, video surveillance of the plaintiff which was taken before plaintiff's deposition should have been precluded from the summary judgment stage at trial and trial. At the pre-deposition stage, defendant had not complied with plaintiff's discovery notice or two court orders requiring disclosure of video surveillance. However, video surveillance of the plaintiff after plaintiff's deposition is not subject to any disclosure deadline and may be used at trial. As the court explained it, quote, Defendant's noncompliance with the plaintiff's discovery notice and two court orders over an extended period of time was willful and strategic with regard to the pre-deposition surveillance video. The defendant should have been precluded from using the surveillance video of the plaintiff as it was not disclosed prior to plaintiff's deposition. CPLR 3101 provides no fixed deadline for the disclosure of post-deposition surveillance video footage. End quote. So the takeaway, video surveillance of the plaintiff taken prior to a deposition must be turned over pursuant to a discovery notice and or a court order but there's no deadline for turning over post-deposition video surveillance. Next is Matter of serrata, pages 24 and 25 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Versal Report. This is a workers' compensation case. Usually, injury in a traffic accident on the way to work is not covered by workers' compensation but there is a so-called special errand exception. Here the claimant was a police officer who had been called to investigate a grand larceny and was driving to pick up his police car when the accident happened. The court explained, quote, the record reflects that the claimant was contacted at 4.15 a.m., at which time claimant began his command and coordination of the criminal investigation of the grand larceny. It was at this point that claimant was engaged in a special errand, as he was then required to report to work early in order to pick up a police vehicle so that he could proceed directly to the crime scene in that vehicle. Next is Dyakiv, that's D-Y-A-K-I-W, page 26 of the May 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report, It's a traffic accident case. Here the defendant gestured to allow another driver named Salian to enter the defendant's lane of traffic from a driveway. But Salian crossed defendant's lane into the next lane for traffic going in the opposite direction and collided with the plaintiff. Even if defendant was negligent in gesturing to Salian, defendant is not liable for Salian's unforeseen negligence in pulling into the other lane. The court explained, Assuming without deciding that defendant negligently motioned to Salian before she proceeded from the driveway and attempted to turn left, Salian's unforeseeable failure to see what was there to be seen and yield the right of way to the plaintiff constituted an intervening and superseding cause that established defendant's entitlement to judgment as a matter of law. So the takeaway here even if defendant were negligent in gesturing to Salian to pull out of the driveway. Salian's negligence in pulling into the oncoming lane was an unforeseeable intervening and superseding cause of the collision with the plaintiff for which the defendant is not liable. Next is Matter of DeMio, page 28 of the May 2023 personal injury reversal report it's a workers' compensation case here the third department reversed the workers' compensation board although the board found a causal connection between claimant's stress caused by interaction with claimant's supervisor and claimant's heart attack the board went on to find that claimant did not sustain a physical injury the third department held the heart attack constituted a physical injury as the court put it A cardiologist testified unequivocally that claimant was diagnosed as suffering a myocardial infarction based upon the elevated troponin levels in claimant's blood, which was consistent with a stress event on the heart, and opined that the heart attack was causally related to claimant's interaction with her supervisor at work. Based on this uncontroverted evidence, the board, in fact, found that claimant suffered a myocardial infarction causally related to work. The board nevertheless found that claimant did not sustain a physical injury, characterizing the incident as claimant having been in mild emotional distress and experiencing a stress event. This is contrary to the unrefuted and unequivocal medical evidence and diagnosis claimant suffered a myocardial infarction. That concludes this personal injury update CLE for April and May 2023.